A note for High Noon listeners before we get to this week's episode. We try our best here at Independent Women's Forum to get crystal clear audio to you, but sometimes technology just doesn't cooperate with us. Um, And this episode is one of those times where there can be some audio hiccups. Um, I know as a listener how annoying that can be, um, but I really think this discussion with Amy Therese on the psychology of the left and how our representatives and institutions understand victimhood and power is definitely worth powering through that annoyance. Um, on that note, if you have kids listening to High Noon, first of all, I love that. But second, I did want to warn you that this episode does contain some language you might want to avoid them repeating. Uh, but with that, I hope you really enjoy this episode with Amy Therese as much as I enjoyed talking with her. Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And nobody is more interesting than my guest this week, Amy Therese. Um, she is half of the formerly what was known as the What's Left podcast. Um, she has a new podcast launching upcoming this year. She's a writer with Return and other um, other magazines of, of, of uh, dissidents. <laughs> against against the uh, leftist <laughs> regime um, and she is constantly banned on twitter you might have seen her takes on oh. twitter but uh she's constantly getting kicked off uh, there seems to be an entire team at twitter headquarters dedicated to making sure that amy therese never gets to share her opinion on twitter so the first question i'm gonna ask you amy is why do you think you're so constantly getting booted off of twitter for saying things that like literally, I mean, you say them very well and eloquently, but tons of people say the same substance and don't get banned. They just really hate you. I think um, I was chatting about this yesterday with Anna Katchin, and her theory is that like it's this whole like um, they they hate you more if you're a traitor than if you were like never one of them. And so her thesis is that like anyone who's ever had anything to do with the left is basically like on their shit list for life if they dare to leave, like if they dare to walk away. And so it sort of puts you in the crosshairs, all these little weirdos in who will like automatically get all of your tweets popped into like their little Slack chats for spying on naughty tweeters and the like. And so I just, I just think it's like got a lot to do with the fact that I was once a leftist or left adjacent. Um, I think once you're in their crosshairs, it's very hard to yeah, step to, out of them. To to be released from your, your personal living hell. Seriously. Um. It's so dumb. It's so dumb. I never say anything that actually violates the rules, but we know that's not how it works anyway, so whatever. Just um. Actually, one of the things that's remarkable about you for somebody who did come over from the left is that you don't seem to have this, to me, a very obnoxious tick that a lot of people in the center left or like IDW sort of connected space or even some of the former dirtbag leftists or whatever. Uh, they have this like this inability to prevent themselves from separating from the, the really bad people. Right. So, you know, uh, I think the quintessential thing of this genre was that free speech letter um, signed by a bunch of people, including like, Thomas Chatterton Williams, whose work I really like. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. But, yeah, that one. you know, it spent three quarters of the letter denouncing Trump. And we're like, we know the left isn't this bad, but it's still bad. Right. And, and you don't have any of that impulse. Like, why, why do you think you. Oh, they would. They, yeah. No, those those people want leftism to be its best self. Um, like they want better leftism. They want it without the excesses, without, the, you know, the parts that make it a little bit gauche the parts that are a little that go a little bit too far um i'm under no illusions like i 
I think that like that kind of um, going too far and then having sort of like moderate leftists pretend that leftism itself is salvageable and good and noble um but they just went a little bit too far this time i think that's sort of the prevailing like ethos with a lot of those people but i i think it's all kind of one and the same um i find that sort of lily livered like um you know unwilling like a total like unwillingness to just um, defend a principle on the basis of the principle, irrespective of who you happen to find um, in your camp as a result. Like that to me is just ridiculous. Like you don't need to degrade anyone or put anyone down or like mark out like who the bad people are to defend something as basic as freedom of expression. Like you don't need to, you know, uh, buy brownie like you don't need to sort of have this brownie point system where it's like oh you can defend research but only if you spend half the thing like denouncing the naughty people on the right or whatever it's just like stupid the whole point of something like freedom of expression is that it needs to be like to a large extent like content independent and like you want to be defending the speech of the people that you find most obnoxious not like passing out, you know, whether someone's gone a little bit too far to like be granted their freedom, their freedom of expression. It's just like all this middling nonsense. Like, no, just back the principle and then it's easy. Then you don't have to worry about passing out all these like silly little situations or people or whatever. Um, you know, what, what happened to the left after Bernie's failure? Right, because you're saying like there, there's not. Um, it seems like a lot of people went down this path of, and they they had some critiques of the rising part of the left, which is, mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to use the word woke only because I, I keep repeating on this podcast, but like, yeah. <laughs> I use the word woke because there's no better word, but it just it's so imprecise that it bothers me every time, and I feel yeah. like I, I know that feeling. I have the same reservations, but getting what it is, whatever. But there's just no better word for it. But, you know, totally. Th there were a lot of folks on, on, in that position in 2016 who it seems like in 2015, a lot of them saw the problems, especially class based problems with the direction of the left. Right. But then, you know, when Bernie sort of took a run at the, the crown and failed, they just completely folded on a lot of their objections. Um and I, it doesn't seem like there's much of a dissent anymore. Like even some of those figures like Bernie himself or even, you know, whatever, like it, it seems like they've changed. They've just changed their positions to be in line with with the dominant woke left and not like, I don't know. How much resistance do you think there even is to any of this, like in any substantive form on the left? Oh, I, I think the left is like in the most sort of um conformist like um like actually very very rigid um political orientation and it's, it's like there is no dissent there is nobody that is allowed to disagree on anything and they have this like totalizing kind of set of policing mechanisms that sort of act laterally and horizontally that keep everyone in line and I think a huge part of what made my account sort of grow and people take notice of me during the primary 
uh, the Democrat primary in like 2019, 2020, is that I was the only one saying the bleeding obvious in terms of the fact that like both Bernie and Elizabeth Warren were competing for the same factions of voters and were also running on a fairly similar like left, um, you know, sort of progressive, like uh, somewhat popular, like economic populist sort of platform. And the fact is that they can't both be the nominee. And so it's kind of ridiculous that they're, you know, going throughout the primary, like refusing to criticize one another. This is crazy to me. And I was saying the whole time, like Liz Warren is going to eat Bernie's lunch. Like I don't understand why anyone, like why you're all ignoring her. This is so obvious. Like what's wrong with you? Anyway, they all called me crazy for the part of a year, tried to deplatform me. And then like it turns out that, yep, that's exactly what happened. Liz Warren went from like a 5% um, at the very beginning of the primary to like 32% or whatever. And she also shivved Bernie in terms of like calling him sexist and all that type of like absolute nonsense. And like, I just think that ultimately like the way, what looks like internal competition within the party um, and like sort of, it really does look like dissent and it looks like, um, you know, a, a sense of vibrancy within the party is actually just sort of like um, mutually constitutive factions of the same kind of electoral machine. And so the way I sort of look at it is that like Sanders never criticised Warren, not even one time throughout the primary. And that to me is crazy. So like they weren't competing. What they were doing is attracting the votes of slightly different factions of the democrat base and then like what that means is that even when they drop out of the actual race they'll then sheepdog their specific portion of the base into voting for joe Biden in the general and i think that actually it's like it was it's a very like team-oriented thing even though it seems like there's a lot of competition in the party. Like, do you remember a couple of years ago on, I think it was just after Super Tuesday, where they all basically all dropped out in rapid succession to give... Yeah, Biden I remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that, like, the purpose was that Bernie would be able to collect this massive faction of basically millennials that someone like a Joe Biden could never energize. But once Bernie and the sort of like influences and like the people that are like Bernie world, once they got him, once they got all those people sort of um, excited throughout the primary, then it was only a hop, skip and a jump to get them to follow through to the general. Whereas if you didn't have, if, if Sanders didn't run, then none of those millennials would have given a shit about that primary really. Yeah, I mean, uh, he's he's given them a reason now with student loan forgiveness. I really think that's like the responsible yes, yes. for Democrats being able to to turn out young voters in the in the midterms. It's literally just a direct bribe in some sense. Yes, it literally is, and it's so funny. Like, because I would argue with them about this, and it was it turned out to be such a, like 
obvious tell because like on the one hand these people were pushing a so-called like working class politics and i did some pretty basic calculations like it's not rocket science this is blatantly like a wealth transfer from the lower middle class to like the upper upper middle class and that to me is repulsive like if you're pretending that what you're doing is something that's meant to be sort of like you know for the average joe like why should a mechanic be paying nathan robinson's like third ivy league um degree that's crazy (laughs) like i don't that doesn't make any sense whatsoever yeah i mean one of the things that um i like about how you think about these issues is that you are one of the the best parsers i think of power and sort of power dynamics in console like in, in sort of concert with um with psychology Right. So um, the way you just described the primary, right, which is like, okay, that this is a, a, a sort of false competition in order mm. to psychologically invest young voters who yeah. um, you know, have it. certain yeah. left impulses. Like, you're really good at parsing that. Um, you know, this is something <laughs> I think is just like a huge deficit on the right. We, we, don't, we don't think about power and we don't think about psychology almost at all, I feel like. I mean, there's some exceptions, obviously, but. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's changing. I think there's like quite a few in the distant right who are like much better at that than some of the sort of older old hat types. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's like, there are definitely exceptions, um, and more and more. But it's it's so powerful because it's a, it's it's an, it's a good way of looking at the world. Because um, one of the things that really kind of I don't know cemented in my head that the way that you're looking at these things is is almost always correct um was was the aoc trauma kind of incident where (laughs) uh, she's talking about how she was like um sexually assaulted and therefore like this this was uh, traumatizing her but she's, she's, she's a person in a position of power essentially victimizing herself yeah or passing herself as a victim of her own sort of of people who don't have anywhere Mm. near her level of power yeah i find it so disturbing it's just like incredibly like um incredibly like uh, um popular tendency like on very much on the left but i imagine it won't it won't stay confined to the left nothing ever does where it's like these people in positions of like very real power who traditionally like you know the obligation that they have in view of the the position that they're in is to exercise their power responsibly like to perform you know a public duty or a public service or whatever that you know their job may be but there's so many of these people who just like spend much of like their time in public life crying and like but pretending to be victims and like acting as if they're oppressed when they're in positions of real power and I think that's just such an alarming like asymmetry because if you as a person in power are purporting to be powerless and victimized like how do we hold you accountable for the power that you wield because when you are wielding power if anyone tries to hold you accountable you start crying and pretending (laughs) that the person is like sexist or racist or whatever it's just like this total like teflon like inability to hold someone accountable if that's the way they're going to conduct themselves it's crazy to me 
do you think that, I mean, like, it seems to be a really successful mode of politics, right? Um, the success of AOC uh, in in the Democratic Party. But I think you're right. Like, there's no way this is going to be confined just to the left. Um, eventually, you know, what works will be adopted. But, mm. I mean, what, what are the consequences of a politics where the people in power are able to cast themselves of, as victims of, like, let's say in a de- democracy, right? Like, uh, representatives are able to cast themselves as victims traumatized by voters. <laughs> Well, I think, first off, it allows them to basically, like, act as if, um, you know, their opponents in the House are actually not just enemies of the Democrat Party, but enemies of humanity and, you know, whatever it is is that they stand for is actually, like, metaphysically evil and the battle is not against... Mm -hmm you know, Josh Hawley of Missouri, it's against, like, these, like, Confederate white men who are damaging our democracy or whatever. Like, they just basically cast everything in these, like, totally, like, Marvel Cinematic Universe terms with, like, these, you know, um, incredibly binary, like, comic book villains and heroes and this sort of thing. And it just... Oh, yeah, I mean, I just... I think it has really troubling implications if, you know... um you can sort of conflate um, your political opponents with these sort of like metaphysical forms of like evil and you know, act as if um, there are these like incredibly grand narratives to which like you're just this like damsel in distress and like anything that your opponent does is just, yeah, totally like... <laughs> Not just like, you know, um, mobilizing sort of opposition to you, but mobilizing something illegitimate against all people like yourself, if that makes sense. So, like, I remember a couple of years ago, um, in relation to AOC, there was that time where I believe it was Ted Yoho, um, called AOC a bitch on the stairs. Um, of co- like outside Congress, which is like you know, obviously that's not an appropriate thing to call one of your colleagues. Like it's you know momentary slip. You fucked up. Like you should not speak to colleagues that way. Like I don't care what sex or gender or whatever they are. It's just like rude and unnecessary. And he should have said sorry. Like he made a mistake, which is these things happen. But like. It sort of stunned me at least that like this is someone with whom AOC works on a day-to-day basis and rather than sort of like you know giving him uh, giving him any kind of dignity allowing him to say sorry allowing him to sort of like attempt to make up for doing something wrong um she had to pounce on it immediately and commodify it into like this massive like speech um wherein she could sort of like tie the sort of emotions of everyone in the country every woman in the country at least every girl in the country she could sort of like recruit all of their emotions all of their like sort of animosity towards men all of their sort of like yeah girl power whatever whatever 
Um, and just trying to do this like ongoing sort of speech that she could sort of um, build this sort of like victim capital from. And it's just like, I don't know, I, I've, I can imagine that that's not the kind of environment in which like people are going to be capable of working together. It's like anything you do can be blown up instantly into just this like trauma, um, trauma credibility, you know, rather than just sort of like giving someone a chance to say sorry, sort of, you know, having a bit of like humility, giving someone a chance. Like, you know, at the end of the day, like, again, I'm not excusing it, but like you probably have to antagonize your colleagues pretty badly to get, you know, a fellow house member to call you a bitch. Which again doesn't justify it, but like the the inability to sort of look at your own behavior in any way and just instantly do this whole like binary victim um, victim antagonist nonsense. It just it just seems to me so antithetical to um, actually getting anything done for anyone other than yourself. It just seems such a like promotional hustler move as opposed to being something that like actually does anything for anyone else. Yeah, you know. Yuval Levin has made this point um, in in the like much less sort of internal psychological way um, about mm-hmm. how institutions are just platforms for individuals now. Like there's no sense of accountability, responsibility, like subhuming yourself to an office or a um, like any way through which you could actually responsibly wield power and be held accountable for the decisions that you make. Um, mm. That's, that's all sort of done, right? Um, it's now like Congress is now a platform for AOC yeah. and like this guy losing his cool with her over some unrelated thing is now her next ability, like platform to yeah. make herself to leverage off. the victim yeah, to- and, and to take all the, ironically, like to, to sort of sap in all that power that comes with that. Because as you say, it's just, um, you know, identifying herself with this very much larger group and every like woman who's ever been done wrong by a man. You know what I mean? Like, and mm. it, that has nothing to do. They're probably arguing over whether the government should do X or Y, right? Like, that should not yeah. be a matter of sort of psychological terror. nothing to do. It's got nothing to do with gender. Like, she was being a bitch, and you shouldn't have called her a bitch, but, like, if she was being a bitch, maybe she could, like, think about her own behavior. Like, you have to, like, for one of your colleagues to call you a name like that, like, you have to have done something pretty bloody annoying. And, like, sure, they're still in the wrong. They still shouldn't do that. But, like, have enough humility and grace to be willing to sort of recognize that if someone's getting mad or really frustrated it's you've done whatever it is to frustrate them try to treat other people with decency instead of just looking at them as like a potential commodity a potential moment that you can leverage into yeah even more of this like victimhood capital yeah well the worst part about it is that it it makes the exercise of power covert yes absolutely it's it's not it, it completely like <laughs> it completely eliminates it, in some sense it's better if even if if uh even if there are for example tyrannical laws being passed um it's it's kind of clear and open in the open and i do think the bureaucracy and technocracy have a lot to do with sort of obscuring the the sources of power but just on a on a pure like individual and sort of um 
again, psychological level, it's it's like this gaslighting thing where somebody's exercising power over you, but they're they're saying like, "Ow, ow, you're hurting me," right? Like it's it's obviously oh, yeah, way worse. I don't remember which yeah. congressman this was, but like it was obviously way worse for him to have like this episode blasted out to the world than it was so for her to hear him so call unnecessary. Her it was so unnecessary for her to do that like it just was it seemed to me such a tyrannical like manipulative and unnecessary abuse of power like your colleague made a mistake he fucked up you don't need to humiliate him you don't need to do this like just stop and the other thing that was crazy is that this was during the pandemic and part of the genesis of the argument had been something to do with some kind of like um feeding like some kind of maybe a school lunch program or something to do with like charitable some kind of charitable food project some kind whatever this congressman ted yoho had actually been on the board of a charity that did some kind of like um like uh, i can't remember that's like feeding homeless people or something to do with like homeless youth something like this he'd been on the board of that charity for like 20 years and had done a lot of work with like actually put his money where his mouth is and like you know was being like a good citizen and that particular charity fired him from the board because of like the dishonor associated with like his calling AOC a name. Yeah, I mean, is there any way to actually stop this kind of sort of jujitsu from constantly happening? Um, yes, it seems like yes, whoever does to, this holds the. You have to like, laugh at these hard. people. They need to be mocked to their face immediately because they're always lying. And the moment that somebody is prepared to laugh at it instead of giving it any reverence, then it collapses. Like, these, these people aren't pictures. They should be laughed at. And I think that, like, the, you know, I think incredibly conspicuous, like, um, increase in the amount of policing of comedy that has gone on over the last few years is like not an accident i think so much of these nonsense is so pompous ridiculous that all it takes is somebody sort of mocking it even just slightly and it falls apart and that's why these people like need to silence anyone who criticizes them anyone who calls anything into question like by the same token um part of sort of what started my um you know getting exiled from the left eventually was like when me too um happened i just sort of it was so obviously instantly that like this wasn't some kind of like um anti-oppression anti movement that was like you know um from the streets some kind of like oppressed group like fighting for their rights or whatever this is just like angry career women who were just like spitefully lashing out at men that had jobs they wanted like which is not I, I know that there were a couple at the outset that had like real merit um and I don't want to pretend it's all like um who was the first uh Weinstein was obviously like awful and there were a few others but it sort of got to a point where that just this rolling witch hunt that went on and on and on and on forever it's just like well it's pretty clear what's going on here is that like any enterprising young woman who wants to make a name herself in like you know new york like liberal media just has to come along and like cry about some like 
you know, middle-aged white guy who did something wrong one time, allegedly, and she'll have, like, a golden ticket handed to her. And that's, like, such a, like, contemptible and, like, illegitimate way to, you know, um, like, you shouldn't be rewarding things like that. Like, if it's sexually assaulted, that's awful, and I'm so sorry, but, like, go to the police or sue the person. You can go to the media and tell these, like, salacious stories. That's, like, like, that's what you do when it doesn't pass muster with police or courts or anyone else. I just, it's so obvious that, like, what they're seeking from all of these things is just, like, victim capital, like, the ability to pretend to be... Um, somebody who is downtrodden, somebody who is oppressed or whatever, um, so that then they can berate people and abuse their power and demand things that they wouldn't otherwise be uh, granted. Do you, do you think there are real instances of fragility in this? Because I go back and forth on this. Like, clearly, so clearly somebody like AOC is very calculated about how she puts on this performance, right? It's very clearly to advance her own like, profile and power. But like, especially the younger, really younger set of Gen Z. You know, I, I actually even think for real. I think somebody like AOC actually like ironically, um, sure, like the, the machine infrastructure, the party infrastructure around her is like very deliberate, blah, blah, blah. But I think that like, um, People like AOC, like, she's just, like, a glib um, narcissist. She, like, she's actually relatively sincere. She believes her own bullshit, I think. Like, I don't think it's as insincere as we would, like, believe. Like, I think it's not as calculated. It's not calculated as such. It's mm -hmm. that she, basically, people like her are always flying by the seat of their pants in terms of protecting their ego. Like that's always the number one thing that they need to do. They need to sort of inflate their own ego with this like grandiose rhetoric and bullshit. Um, they need to get attention um, and they need to sort of afford themselves some kind of like um, moral or political sort of um, – power or entitlement they sort of have these fantasies like grandiose fantasies of a kind of entitlement and specialness and uniqueness and blah 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 but like i don't think she's um faking as such i think she just has like a very um a very shallow like um commitment to the things that she says so like people like her will say something this week and then say the opposite in like three weeks time and she won't relate the two to each other or feel as if she's contradicted herself in any way. It's like she's just seeking the, that sort of like ego validation at all times. So that's basically like the continuity throughout it. What 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 is it about our society or about our culture that creates so many more of these kinds of people, whether they're narcissists or... <laughs> the cluster yeah. of psychos. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is just my sort of rough and tumble, like, um, thesis. I think it is attachment difficulties. I think it is, a pro like, attachment problems, like, and kind of um, 
emotionally unavailable or engulfing um, parents. I think that, you know, this sort of like um, helicopter parenting and like all that sort of, you know, um, obsessive like planning of your kids' like life and time and like um, extracurricular activities, all that nonsense, like, Sure, you seem like an attentive parent, but like actually what most kids need for most of their childhood is sort of like space and time to play and explore things and sort of grow and figure things out. Um, they don't need sort of like a, an incredibly regimented like series of like, you know, um, extracurriculars and like an inability to ever have any time away from like mum or other people that are sort of like telling them what to do. Like kids need to be able to play and explore and that sort of thing. And I think like an inability to sort of explore the world um, on your own terms, in your own time with other people your age, I think that that does enormous damage to kids. Um, and I also think that like parents who are too focused on their own bullshit and on um, imagining their child as an extension of their own ego rather than um, a small and growing person who will someday be independent of them. Like, y you really need to equip your kids to, like, think for themselves and develop personality. And, like, you need to validate them for them, not validate them for, like, you know, stupid achievements with school or whatever, like... I don't know, I just think that, like, there's a lot of objectification that goes on. Um, like, sort of parents will sort of reward and punish their children according to their ability to kind of live up to mom or dad's fantasies rather than um, sort of giving your kids the space to um, sort of become people in their own right. Um, and I think that does, like, incredible damage because if you don't have like very healthy like attachment figures as a kid if you um feel like you need to constantly like protect yourself from like shame or fear or danger in the home um whether it be emotional danger or like actual like, physical violence whatever whatever like if you don't get like really secure um like if you if you don't have very like secure attachment to your primary like caregivers that just plays out in a million retarded ways later uh, later on in life. It means that, like, you're constantly going to be looking for this, like, shallow ego validation rather than um, having the ability to sort of regulate your own emotions and, like, um, value certain things more than the sort of, like, immediate gratification that, like, ego validation provides. Well, I think another way of framing what you just said might be that there's no status or reward for parents for just in the culture at large for raising mm -hmm. just like a virtuous stable person right yeah. like there's no reward for character or virtue like if you raise um you know a solid human being who you know doesn't do sort of amazing in school or go to the best college but grows up and you know, um, gets a job and works hard and marries and has children of their own, there's no status or reward or um, at least not like from the larger culture 
um, you know, that that person is viewed as a failure and you're viewed as a failure as a, a parent in some in a lot of circles. I mean, I grew up in Palo Alto and like, <laughs> you know, you'd be viewed as a failure for raising a child like that if he or she didn't, you know, have a bunch of other academic or um, sort of financial or, or whatever achievements that go alongside of that. But it seems like that's the most endangered kind of person now is just raising like if you have somebody who's a wreck like a narcissistic wreck who can't form decent relationships can't take responsibility for their actions can't like that's the failure not somebody who didn't go to harvard but there's not a lot of recognition especially in elite circles i think of america about like what's what's actually a failure as a parent is if you can't launch your child into an independent and stable life right mm. Yeah, I mean, I agree, but like, I think there is, and I mean, I'm really apprehensive about like, how do you frame what I'm about to say? Because I do imagine that like at every moment throughout history, sort of um, people attempted to sort of say, oh, there's something, you know, um, quite novel happening in our particular moment in history. So look, like I'm aware that maybe, maybe it's not novel, maybe it's always been this way, but it does feel to me at least a lot like um, so many of the institutions in whether it be Australia or the United States, like so many of the institutions of like countries that I, like, I, I love Australia, like, I love the states too, I've been there a bunch, like I actually like my country, like I don't want to feel as though all of the institutions that govern my country are basically rewarding this like incredibly like shameless, spineless, like backstabbing, like sniping, horrible behavior and will like elevate, you know, the worst people on earth for doing horrible things and will like punish and like um, and shun and, you know, ostracize like good and decent people with like moral integrity they'll get like you know they'll find themselves um living in the ecuadorian embassy or you know um getting asylum in russia or whatever you know what i mean it seems like this like an incredibly weird time where like some of the most ridiculous people in society are being sort of propped up and like given all these accolades and i just i don't know i feel like like does it at any point like does he stop does it or does it just keep getting sillier because it feels pretty silly like the last few years have felt very weird yeah i mean so on the one hand it's a comfort that you know things that can't go on forever won't i, I don't think mm. you can continually be this silly and <laughs> I think so too. Like, I hope so. That sort of remains my abiding kind of, you know, yeah. Yeah, but it's not that much of a comfort because usually the way that those things end is by some other like society coming in and, and collapsing yours and just taking over. Or, um, you know, in the case of, of the Soviet Union, you, know, you, you can you can stay silly a long time, right? Um, and, and especially because America is so rich and, and Australia is also like a very rich country by the standards of the world, right? Um, you know, if you're really rich, you can continue to be silly for a long time before everything comes crashing down. But it does feel that way. Like even this week, right? Like the FAA had to ground all the flights 
Like, they, they just screwed up on such a monumental level that they had to ground all flights in America for hours. And obviously, this screwed up a ton of, you know, sort of ancillary. Like, it, it seems like we can't perform <laughs> basic functions anymore. Right. Uh, yeah, there's this, like, uh... pervasive sense of that nothing works. That everything is broken. Mm. Nothing actually functions. Um, mm. you know. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's like I've never been fully um, persuaded by that sort of like singularity nonsense. But like, I do think there's something to be said for the fact that like as increased, as sort of as um, cognitive sort of skills that most sort of, you know, citizens in like an educated Western country would have like developed automatically in the 20th century. Um, these sort of uh we no longer develop them because we ha we can sort of outsource them to the to the iphone in our pocket or whatever and like apply that to a whole bunch of other forms of technology that basically like do a whole bunch of things for us that previously would have had to do for us all like does seem rather sort of like strange to me at least increasingly i realized how like so many of my millennial is um literally cannot do basic math um they can't spell they can't do sort of like um like problem solving like basic sort of lateral thinking basic like problem solving and it's sort of it seems to me that like no matter how you know to whatever extent technology can take over a bunch of different like functions or um things on behalf of us like there will still always be like human beings running the systems and like if we don't know how to like think critically <laughs> or like you know don't have the balls to say hang on i think something is wrong here and be willing to stand up and say that at, like the moment when it's salient rather than you know two six twelve months later it just i don't know it seems like there's these fairly basic ideas about like what it means to be like a decent person having like some moral integrity being honest like not being sort of like a backstabbing disloyal rat it just seems crazy to me but all these like very basic things seem to be sort of like actively selected against um in like a lot of our institutions it seems like that's not something that is sustainable in any way like I was thinking today that the AI singularity might be going the other way. Like, <laughs> I don't know if this might be completely <laughs> crazy, but all the time. <laughs> no, but that that <laughs> that we're becoming more like AI. I was watching, um, and, and this is reminiscent of some. I think it was in the New York Times, maybe a year ago or something. But it was like how to break up with your friend, or how to tell your friend that oh God, you don't have um, yes. you don't have any like bandwidth for them right now, and oh you don't you yes, can handle that, it yes. like. It's like training people to speak to each other like AIs. And it ties back to the whole AOC, AOC thing, right? Like she just took that and, and turned it into a marketable sort of internet moment. It's But it, people are doing that, even people who don't have the incentive for power or platform that AOC has. It's, it's like, like these people lack basic social skills. Like they literally lack basic like social and communicative skills. They don't know how to like ask for what they want and to like say yes or turn something down when they don't want something that's sort of again like to throw back to me too it seemed to be so much of the sort of like um cry baby discourse surrounding that was sort of um amounted to these pieces where women were effectively um you know essentially like felt confronted by the fact that um you know, 
midway through some kind of encounter, they'd realize they didn't want to go further. And rather than just sort of explicitly sort of um, calling it off or like leaving, um, they seem to sort of get increasingly resentful as like the, the other party, the guy, couldn't read their mind. It's just like, honey, you need to be capable of disappointing somebody when, if you're not interested in them. Like you can't, you know, go along with somebody's advances on you um, and then sort of change your mind and not communicate that and then hold it against them. Like you need to be capable of actually taking the initiative, like sort of uh, being assertive and being capable of sort of disappointing people sometimes too. It seems so much of this is just like a sort of um, inability to or unwillingness to sort of um, disappoint people and to say no um, in sort of basic social interactions. And so yeah, it's like really another good. one of those recently where um, that one that I've, I saw, and I think you, um, you saw when I posted it, it was like these girls who like were writing these scripts by which like men were allowed to talk to them in a bar. Like a guy is supposed to come up and say like, I'm so sorry if this is weird, but may I please flirt with you? Stuff like this. Yeah, it's just and I will leave. And I will leave right away if you are not interested. It's like you don't need to ask somebody that you flirt with them, and then they can turn you down. They can make it apparent that they're not interested. That's sort of like what social discourse is, but these women like set up all these like insane hoops for people to jump through so that they don't have to sort of uh, reject someone, basically. It's just like, no, honey, you like part of being a, an adult is that sometimes you um, have to disappoint other people if you're not as interested in them as they are in you. And that doesn't feel good. And you should try to do it gently and kindly, but that's what it is to be an adult. You can't just like stay quiet and pretend or pretend to be interested in someone, make out with them, and then sort of decide that you don't want to do that anymore, but not make that outwardly um, apparent <laughs> to the other person. <laughs> Yeah, there's such a good example of exactly what you're talking about. There was one of these cases, a Title IX case on a uh, college campus, and this is several years ago, right. where, like, a girl, you know, was hooking up with a guy, got completely naked, mm -hmm. got into his bed, and then, you know, um, she accused him of sexually assaulting her when she was just like, oh, it felt less awkward to just let it continue. Well, I mean... Sure, I mean, it, I bet it is pretty awkward once you're naked and in bed with someone. A naked in his bed. Day, is this that's, a joke? That's your job, you know. If you don't, if you're not into the interaction, like, what that did you think you, you were doing it? when you took your clothes off and got into his bed naked? <laughs> like, there, I, I fully so... believe it's more awkward to say no at that point. But still, like, that's your, you know, if you're not, you know, we actually have women have a tremendous amount of power because most guys are good men and they don't they don't want certainly don't want to force a woman against her will and you but it's your responsibility then to just no they're all silent be that awful you know all, most guys like even just like even like um you know not even like soy beta males or whatever like even just normal guys these days are like so like affirmative consenty like i just this idea of like patriarchy or rape culture is preposterous like 
definitely not the case. It is difficult though to like um to change your mind in the midst of something and then to sort of basically have to reckon with like, it is a moral contrary and you yourself have to decide like whether you'd rather suck it up and um sort of do something that you don't want to do um to save it like rather than sort of go through some kind of like awkward situation in order to like leave that environment or end that encounter but that's what it means to be a big girl like you need to make decisions and like reckon with the implications that flow from them like this is pretty basic stuff <laughs> yeah i mean so much of what you say is just basic um <laughs> You know, like it's, it's things that would be readily accepted and obvious, um, which is funny why you keep getting banned for saying it. But these are things <laughs> that would be accepted as obvious, even, I mean, even for sure 10 years ago, maybe five years ago, right? Like, yeah, yeah. You say anything prudent, like, I, I don't know, maybe don't get like shit face drunk um, when going out you go and, or like, you know, um, make sure that you sort of don't put yourself into situations that are sort of dangerous or where you'll be vulnerable or where your decision-making capacity is sort of compromised below a level that you can feel good about. Like these sorts of things that are just like sensible advice, obviously, are so quickly framed as like, oh, you're victim-blaming, you're like a rape apologist. It's just like nobody thinks that rape is okay. And if they actually think that, they're not the ones talking about this particular issue. They'll stay quiet about it because they know that they're the outlier. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like all this, like, sort of nonsense, like, um, Orwellian, like, language policing and, like, binary framing of things makes it impossible to just be, like, sensible and normal in the way that you talk about certain things. And it just, like, has all these toxic flow-on effects. Like, I don't know. I... I'm quite troubled by some of the Title IX stuff, especially like um, there were a few years ago certain um, cases are starting to basically move from the sort of kangaroo court set up on the universities through to being actually litigated in courts of law. It seems like a terrible thing to me that, that like totally um, non-transparent, like shadowy sort of process that takes place on the universities for that to then be like transported into the proper like adversarial legal system it's pretty troubling yeah i mean fortunately still in the legal system like there's been a lot of successes of mostly men who have sued in the federal courts and yes one uh, under true. denial of due process but it, it all operates mm. i mean very much in what um you know what you've described as covert power it all operates in this mm. space of, between the formal courts mm. and the sort of court of public opinion where it's kind of like being accused of a crime but not really and so therefore they can hide behind the notion that oh actually nothing's really happening to you if you're yeah, smeared in the public as a rapist you know yeah. like they pretend that basically they're not doing anything to you all the while you know you're you get expelled from school you lose like your ability to get a job you know your entire uh, social circle is pretty much required to shun you right like and then all the while there's these people saying well we're not doing anything to you because you're not going to jail right and of course you are it's a social death you're destroying somebody destroying somebody's reputation is like a heinous thing to do i just that again with the sort of media and the you know 
um, women doing these sort of like traumatized crybaby nonsense. It's like we have courts of law for a reason. That's because it preserves the uh, presumption of innocence. Like whatever sort of claims you're making should be um, subject to rule of evidence. Like I don't want the fucking BuzzFeed intern um, to be the person who decides whether or not like this seems like a legitimate case. You know what I mean? It's like anyone could sell kind of a story, a story arc, but that's not how we do things in a decent society. Like, you know, even if you hate men, all these men that you accuse illegitimately of sexual assault and whose lives you destroy, they have mothers and daughters and wives and sisters. Like, the impact of this shit is massive and it just seems um really brutal that these women could like do that kind of thing uh in such a cavalier manner and like all these sort of like you know legacy media outlets and then some of the online ones too that they'll all just go along with it and sort of yell and shriek at anyone who dares question anything um, or dares even question sort of the lo- the internal logic of the the quote unquote movement. It's like I'm not even calling any specific person a liar. It's just that like any system that will involve like airing accusations against specific people like um, through a sort of mediatized discourse that has like very real rewards for the person casting the accusations, very real costs for the accused and then like basically no procedural fairness, no due process, nothing. Like it just seems like a terrible thing to want to kind of normalise. Like you should want to kind of reject that way of doing quote-unquote justice. Even if it's in the public square, you should want it to be, you know, not brutal like that. Like I don't know, I just, I've dealt with the like... I think most women have either like had some kind of like traumatic sexual assault experience or, you know, may know a friend or friend of a friend who has. Like this is not something entirely remote to all of us. And that's why it seems to me like incumbent on us to not whittle um, those really like that. It's really serious to make claims of sexual assault against somebody. Like, that's not something you should do flippantly. Like, and it just, again, like, I, I just, in my personal experience, like, the desire to want to go to the media and, like, expose all your sort of, like, all this nonsense to the media just seems to me, like, antithetical to what people have actually reckoned with something really, like, any kind of brutal assault. Like, people want to deal with it and move on. Like, they don't want to go and sort of bask in the limelight of, like, all these stupid liberal, like, papers or outlets or whatever. Yeah, I feel like the the circle has gone, come back here. At, um, I'm going to let you go in a minute. So our hour is up. But I, I really feel like the theme of everything you've said, um, you know, and, and I could add a bunch of other examples, not just in the sexual assault context, but, I mean, even Yul Roth at Twitter, right, or the, the group chat that are, are focused on gaming, you know, making sure that Amy Therese doesn't get to say these things, right? Like, it's an exercise of power completely outside of democratic or even any other kind of accountability here. Mm. Mm. And it's like, I mean, 
even the, to some extent the sort of um the sort of old school like um libertarians of a kind um especially even people like i don't know if you know the psychologist uh, thomas sass um even so like even libertarian like himself it's like in the 20th century like people who didn't want sort of um overbearing state control blah blah like regulation etc they had like a sense of personal propriety like you know sure they may not want like this overweening like nanny state but by the same token they knew that meant like you had to exercise responsibility for yourself and sort of um um be a decent human being in sort of the public square in order for that to like be a functional system whereas it just seems now that it just like um no matter where a lot of these people sort of land on the you know, anywhere from like the liberal to far left, whatever. There just seems to be a total like um like hostility or just like rejection of any kind of like um sense of you know transcendent like moral principles of any kind. It just seems like everything's relative. Like do whatever you want. Like it. it the ends justifying the means just yeah i don't know i really hope that that's something that can start to shift in the forthcoming years because that seems to me like a pretty scary scary prospect if it goes on the way it's going well people people can get more of amy therese by i would say <laughs> following her on twitter except uh she has she has a Substack, um a specter haunting leftism which is an appropriate name. <laughs> um, so you can subscribe yeah. to her thoughts over there. Uh, hopefully she'll be back on Twitter soon. She seems to be caught in a constant. She's like Schrodinger's Twitter account, you know, constantly yeah. caught in between. <laughs> yeah, I'll be, I'll be back. Don't worry. It's never permanent. <laughs> um, and then uh, you, you can catch her podcast when it does launch. Do you have any idea of when that, that might launch? Uh, yeah, my co-host is going overseas uh, during February, so probably March, early March. So you can you can catch her there finally, and hopefully <laughs> she won't get you know banned from Apple Podcasts immediately. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I've remained safe on most other platforms, so they haven't given me the full Alex Jones, Alex Jones treatment yet. So fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you. So you'll never get that treatment here. So uh, thanks, thanks for coming oh, on, Amy. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.